Warning, file 13 contains content that may be too disturbing for some audiences. It contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes. It may not be suitable for children under 13. Listener discretion is advised. On an unusually warm day in February 1983 in the city of St. Louis, two men entered an abandoned apartment building on Clement Street. They were looking for a pipe of some sort of long piece of metal. Supposedly, they had been working on a truck and they needed this spare part to repair it. The two men went into this dilapidated building. It was cold, dark, and damp. Once they were down into the basement, one of the men lit a cigarette. The glare from the flame lit only briefly, but it was long enough to see something lying in the corner of the room. The two men slowly walked over to see exactly what it was, and their hearts sank into their stomach. It was a body. The men, understandably shook, ran out of the building and immediately called the police. This is the story of the decapitation of little Jane Doe. Raped. Murdered. Decapitated. February 28, 1983. Two men looking for scrap metal to fix their car lit a cigarette in the basement of an abandoned apartment building on Clemens Avenue. The light illuminates the body of a young girl. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to File 13. I'm your host, Kawami Curry, and here we explore and discuss the unsolved murders in Black America. Our goal here is to bring cases that have gone cold and unresolved to light so that perhaps someone who may be out there listening may know something that can help crack the case, bring closure to the family, bring the perpetrators to justice. Before we get started, I'd like to thank the team that makes this possible, as I do every week. Starting with my amazing co-host, Bam. She's not here with us this week, but she will return for future episodes. Our head of research and development, Raven Clark Gross. Jessica Hollis Summers, our research consultant and owner of Phoenix Creative Services. She helps us with research interviews, editing, and fact-checking. The man who brings the amazing sounds of suspense in the opening credits, Mr. Ronald Sapiano. And finally, our voice actors, Mr. Corey Scott. Lisa Waters, Medina Smith, and Coco Rain. Now, from the beginning, this story starts off with conflict, for lack of a better term. The idea of two men using pipes from a house to repair trucks seems very unlikely and suspicious. As far as the two men who found the body, their names are Mr. Thompson and Mr. Harris. Police indicated that the two men were understandably rattled by what they saw. And from the start, these men weren't considered suspects. Now, what's even more strange is that after further investigation, we came to find out that a truck actually never broke down and a vehicle actually never needed repairing. In fact, there was no truck at all. Mr. Thompson and Mr. Harris lived across the street at 5579 Clemens. 
You see, Mr. Thompson and Mr. Harris were not adult men. They were actually teenage boys. And according to the family of Mr. Thompson, on the day the on the day they found the body, they were having a barbecue down the street and the two boys wandered off. And that's how they discovered the body. Now, under, now these boys were understandably shaken. They ran back home and immediately informed other members of their family. The family didn't initially believe them, but they did decide to follow them to see this so-called body. And when they get there, they see a sight that sends chills down their spines. When they first saw the body, they didn't even realize that the head was actually missing. It wasn't until someone removed the leaves that they discovered that the body had been decapitated. Police were immediately notified. Now, when the police arrived, they are just as horrified as the boys who found the victims. Homicide detective Joseph Bergoon, one of the initial investigators, hit the ground running. It was concluded by law enforcement that the victim was not killed at the location where she was discovered, as no traces of blood were ever found by the body. This led officers to believe that the blood had been drained from her body elsewhere. Her stomach was also empty at the time of her death. They searched all three floors of the building looking for her head. Now, I couldn't find any information that would give me an indication on whether her head was taken as a trophy piece or to prevent identification. DNA testing wasn't available at that time, so the best way in those times to identify an unknown is through dental records. But with no head, you have no teeth. The Missouri Botanical Garden performed mold tests on her body and neck. Skin slippage on her knees helped determine that she had been killed within five days of her discovery. Law enforcement started searching the area they began knocking on doors, interviewing and searching for potential witnesses. Neighbors said that the building had been vacant for a few years. Now, according to the documentary, Our Precious Hope Revisited, St. Louis Little Jane Doe by Shelby Sosa of Lee Barber and Edra Bird Sosa, the last known tenants lived there in 1978. And when this murder occurred, it's 1983. So that's literally five years since the building had been abandoned. Police went over to local housing project near the crime scene to find out if anyone knew the person on. And unfortunately, there was no luck. Now, according to police reports, initial findings, the walkway leading into the room where the body was found, you can see streaks of blood indicating that she was carried in there. She wasn't killed in that room. Detective Bergoon describes the room as asbestos filled with dirt and leaves. The little girl's body was naked except for a yellow long sleeve v-neck sweater. The label of her sweater was cut out as well, which means there's a possibility they could have identified her. You know, sometimes as a parent, they would write your name on the label on your clothes. That would tell other people that this particular outfit or this particular piece of clothing belongs to you. Now, she reportedly had two coats of red nail polish on her fingers. She was left on her stomach with her hands bound behind her back with red and white nylon rope. She was well nourished and she showed no signs of abuse. Someone had cared for her. Her body was lying on a piece of old rotting wood with her blood on it. Up until that point, the victim was initially believed to be, have been a sex worker. They figured the victim and the perpetrator maybe went in there to have sex and something went horribly wrong and we ended up 
where we are today at that point. But it wasn't until they turned her over that they realized that it was actually a child. There were no signs of puberty. She was approximately about four feet, 10 inches and five feet, six inches when she was alive. They determined her age by her height, but there may have been some discrepancies. Now, if you measure from head to toe, you'll be taller from heel to head. Measuring from her heel to her head, she's about four feet, 10 inches, which puts her at around the ages of eight and 11 years old. Now, the medical examiner reports tells us that the decapitation started from the back of her head and had been severely cleaned by a large blade, possibly a carving knife. Mold was growing out of the hole of her neck, indicating that the body had been in the basement for some time. According to the Riverfront Times, chillingly, her head was never been found. But fingerprints, footprints, and DNA information have been collected. She appeared to have been strangled first. Her body was completely drained of blood. Semen's, semen was found outside the vaginal area. There is a stretching and tearing in the vaginal and rectal area where they almost ruptured the vaginal wall, which means she was alive when this occurred. They found a pubic hair on her. It was white in color. Now get this. Speculation was that it may have been dropped on her by one of the officers at the crime scene or during transport. Like, do at this crime scene, do police like approach prime, like crime scenes butt naked or something? Like, how do you get a pubic hair from inside of a uniform onto a potential victim laying under you? I mean, that simply just doesn't make sense whatsoever. They did examine the hair and they actually got nothing. Now, back to Mr. Thompson and Mr. Harris, the two boys who found the body, they were questioned thoroughly and they had provided DNA samples for comparison. In fact, they would go on to do this several times over the years following the death of little Jane Doe. Now, according to the medical examiner, as I mentioned before, the child had been well taken care of. She didn't show signs of abuse, malnutrition, although her stomach was empty at the time of her death. The crime lab did do a rape kit, but DNA testing wasn't available back then, so finding a suspect was virtually impossible. The doctor said they had to use a serrated knife because they had to cut through the bone. Dive into a world of unsolved murders in Black America with File 13. Each week, we explore a new case, whether it's local, historical, or from national headlines. Come with us as we tell stories about the people who are less likely to have their murder solved. File 13, where we believe a cold case is not a closed case. Listen to us each and every Wednesday, everywhere you find your podcasts. And now, back to the story. The medical examiner also described aspirated blood in her respiratory tract. Now, what this means is that something had to happen to her head like punching or breaking of cartilage that will cause blood to drain down from her head 
she was severely injured before the, her death. She was so violently beaten to the point where she swallowed blood. So now we move into the investigation. So on Tuesday, the day after the body was found, the St. Louis Post runs a story about little Jane Doe, describing it as one of the worst child cases in St. Louis history. But it doesn't even make the front page. Police are calling around to see if anyone reported a child missing. They are calling the schools, but they get no leads. Seven months after her body was discovered, St. Louis detectives accounted for every single 8 to 11-year-old black girl, female, enrolled in the city of St. Louis. Police then get a lead that may help change the course of the entire investigation. So an informant reached out to detectives on March 7th, stating he had information about the case. This informant was initially blown off, but police decided to go, to go ahead and go out and meet him. The informant first tells them he wants a cash reward for this information. The police are like, no, first you give us the information, and if it checks out, then we will give you the $900 cash reward. The informant, being ever so persistent, then calls the Civil Rights Group, CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, and tells them he has footage and photos of the little girl being killed. CORE then calls the St. Louis police and informs them. So now, the police, they set up a sting. They visit the informant disguised as core investigators. He then asks them for the $900. They tell him no, so the informant got angry at the undercover officers because they wouldn't provide him with the, the cash money. But then the police commissioner interviewed the informant for about seven hours and he ends up taking them to Waterloo, Illinois, telling the police that this is where her head is. It's hanging in a tree. But everything he said turned out to be completely false. He had a record and been convicted of stealing by deceit. He finally admitted that he was lying and just wanted to get the money. So now we're back to square one. A few weeks after she was found, a public memorial service was held where about 60 residents from the community attended. This case literally brought out a PR circus. You had psychics demanded to see the body so they could help locate her by touching her they wanted to touch uh, her hands they wanted to do all kind of crazy stuff you even got a state legislator who came out and to take a photo op of the entire tragedy her burial was delayed for nine months with the hope that her parents will come forward to claim her now she would end up being buried on december 2nd 1983 her pallbearers were the cemetery workers um, in attendance, there were only about four people, and those four people were Police Captain Leroy Atkins, Jesse Woodson, the funeral director, the medical examiner Baxter Leisure, and Detective Joe Burgoon. Now, it only lasted five minutes, and after the burial was aired on the news, Mary Schaefer, the owner of Schaefer Monument Company, along with her husband Charles, they donated a headstone for little Jane Doe. However, they left a space on the headstone for her name if it was ever found. On the marker, it says, quote, the saddened hearts were healed in knowing the pain of life is over and the beauty of the soul reveal, unquote. So you think the story would stop there, but it doesn't. The Washington Park Cemetery told the Schaefers that they couldn't erect the headstone because the medical examiner thought it would be inappropriate. But eventually the medical examiner allowed the headstone to be erected after students uh, sent letters asking why she couldn't have a headstone. So on May 10th, 1984, little Jane Doe got her headstone. In May 1983, 
a letter came to police headquarters that named a local man as Little Jane Doe Killer. Authorities were never able to find him. She was also presumed to have been a victim of Vernon Brown. Vernon Brown was a convicted murderer and child molester and suspected serial killer who was convicted for the murders of a young woman and a young girl in St. Louis. This happened in Missouri back in like 1985-1986 and he is suspected of committing at least two other murders. Now, where he had murdered a young girl in a similar manner, Brown was executed in 2005 but never confessed to the murder of little Jane Doe, despite efforts made by investigators. There was also information, that, information stating that Vernon Brown was ruled out as a suspect because the crime was very meticulous and the intelligence level of Mr. Brown, he basically lacked the intelligence capacity to pull off that particular murder, whatever that means. That Honestly, that doesn't make any sense to me, but okay. Then on Valentine's Day 1986, a second letter came with a postmark from St. Louis. The police at this point were so desperate that they they end up sending the rope and a sweater to a psychic out in Florida who wanted to touch it to receive a psychic impression. You guys didn't see my finger air quotes, but I literally did finger air quotes. However, the sweater was never returned and the psychic says she sent it back. So basically, the police turned around, sent this rope. The only evidence that they had, the only physical evidence, which was a sweater and this rope, and they sent it to a psychic through the mail and it get lost in the mail. So it's pretty much gone. And then the psychic turns around and says, oh, I sent it back. But police never actually got it back. Then in 2001, a woman named Sharon Nolte out of Kansas City was convinced that little Jane Doe was in fact not black, but Native American or her name was Shannon Johnson. Nolte was also convinced of this, that she spent about $20,000 of her own money in seven years investigating the case. They did do a DNA analysis and it didn't match. Then in 2009, local authorities, along with the Smithsonian, attempted to exhume little Jane's Doe body, hoping to get a better DNA sample and conduct isotope testing. But locating her body became an investigation in itself because the entire cemetery was in a complete shamble. After the owner, Virginia Younger, committed suicide, it was a mess. And when I say it was a mess, I mean it was a literal complete mess. There were bodies missing from the grave. Some were buried on top of each other. Bones were found above ground. When they eventually found her grave and started excavation, they found three bodies crowded together. None of them was actually her. The headstone itself was placed on the wrong grave from the beginning. But with the help of camera location and the professionals from the university, local university, they eventually found her body for testing. And get this, when they did find her body, there was an adult body found buried on top of her and the samples were sent out to the Smithsonian, according to an article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Now, the test results concluded that little Jane Doe was likely to have lived her entire life in one of the 10 southeastern states, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Tennessee, North or South Carolina. However, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children catalog entry alternately lists the Midwestern states, such as Midwestern, as a matter of fact, Midwestern and Mid-Atlanta states, such as Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Indiana, or West Virginia. She was then reburied in the Catholic service and buried in the Garden of Innocence. So they've named almost 
half the entire nation. So even with these, even with these testing, it's almost like we're back to square one and you really just don't know where she's from at this point. What breaks my heart about this particular case is that this child could have possibly been identified easily if anyone who had a child fit in that description that went missing in that time came forward and just submit a DNA sample to match. Even to this day, it could still be possible. Even with the sweater missing, even with the rope missing, if anybody knows or is related to this young child, they can submit DNA and they can match the DNA from her body. For case help information, if anyone with information about Little Jane Doe, you can call the St. Louis Police Department at 314-444-5822 or the St. Louis Medical Examiner's Office at 314-622-4971. Daddy Issues, the new album by Lauren Nicole is out now. Come into the world of the R&B songstress as she takes you through her journey of love, life, healing, trials, and tribulations. Check out her smash hits, I Met a Guy, Sorry, and Look Who's Crying Now. Daddy Issues, the album, streaming on all platforms. Dive into the world of unsolved murders in Black America with File 13. Each week on Wednesday, we explore a new case, whether it's local, historical, or from national headlines. Come with us as we tell the stories about the people who are less likely to have their murders solved. File 13, where we believe a cold case is not a closed case. Everywhere you listen to podcasts. Before we get out of here, I would like to discuss one more case briefly. Um, This was brought to our attention by Raven Clark Gross. As you all may know, she does research and development for this podcast. And she is a Columbus, Ohio resident. And her daughter actually went to school with the victim in this case. Although she did not know him well, she shared that he was a good kid. He was always nice when they came in contact and she never heard anything bad about Zay. He was a grade above her and one year older than her, and they shared, but they shared mutual friends. Sensei Reed was a 13-year-old African-American male. He lived with his family in the Wedgwood Village Apartments in Columbus, Ohio. This was located in an area called the Hilltop, which is on the city's west side. If you are from Columbus, then you know that the Hilltop is an area that isn't considered to be a place you want to live, It's not the worst place, but it definitely isn't the best that Columbus has to offer. Sensei was born August 17, 2009 to Megan Reed and Louis Snowden. He was known by his friends and family as Zay. Now, like most kids his age, he liked playing video games, listening to music, hanging out with his friends and family. He attended Kip Columbus Charter School and was taking online classes. Wednesday, October 12, 2022 is a day that the Reed family will never forget. On this day, Megan Reed, Sensei's mother, said that her son was at home with her. He spent a lot of time in his room that day because he told her he didn't feel good. According to reports, his mother was cooking dinner when Sensei left the apartment and went outside without her knowledge. 
You can imagine her shock when a neighbor came knocking frantically on the door to share with her that Zay had been shot. Now, court documents state that a witness saw 36-year-old Creek Butler pull up in his red truck at about 5.46 p.m. He exited his truck, started shooting, and then fled the scene. Since Zay had been shot twice, once in the palm of his right hand and once in the right side of his chest, but the bullet exited out his back. He was not seen with a weapon and there was never any evidence to support that he had a weapon. Sensei was rushed to the hospital and he died within an hour. He was only 13 years old. Butler was arrested the next day and charged with murder. A million dollar bomb was placed. And during that his during his arrangement, Butler claimed self-defense. Then on October 20th, Franklin County prosecutors dismissed the charges pending the completion of the investigation. The Franklin County autopsy report was released and it supported the witness's statement that Sensei was shot twice in the hand and once in the chest. They concluded that his death was to be ruled as a homicide. Now, here's where things get a little muddled and muddy. Ohio has a stand your ground law, such as just as we do here right here in Michigan, and this law was updated on April 4, 2021. The Ohio Self-Defense Law Section 2901 0.05. Burden of proof, reasonable doubt, self-defense states a every person accused of an offense is presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And the burden of proof for all elements of the offense is upon the prosecution. The burden of the burden of going forward with the evidence of an affirmative defense and the burden of proof by a preponderance of the evidence for an affirmative defense other than self-defense, defense of another or defense of the accused residence presented as described in division. B1 of this section is upon the accused. A person is allowed to act in self-defense, defense of another or defense of the person's residence if at the trial of a person who is accused of an offense that involved the person's use of force against another, there is evidence presented that tends to support that the accused person used the force in self-defense, defense of another, or defense of the person's residence. The prosecution must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused person did not use the force in self-defense, defense of another, or defense of that person's residence. As the case may be, so what this what does this mean? So what this means is the use of deadly force in self-defense by Ohioans will be justified under the following circumstances. The person is not the aggressor. The person believes they are in imminent danger or death or great bodily harm. The person is in a place where they had a legal right to be. For example, they are not trespassing anywhere. The burden is on the prosecution. This means Butler does not have to prove that it was self-defense. This updated Ohio Stand Your Ground Law protects the shooter and not the victim. This case is reminiscent of the Trayvon Martin case because it involves a young black male Bill being killed by an adult white male claiming self-defense. As of right now, there still hasn't been any arrest made in this case. Creed Butler is still walking around free, and the worst part is he lives in the same apartments as Sensei's mother, so close that she sees him often to this day. There hasn't been any word on why it's taken so long to collect evidence to move forward with the case. What we do know is the case is still open and the family is looking for justice. Raven, I want to thank you for bringing this case to our attention. I know this hits close to home because I know your daughter attended this school. And I want to thank you for providing us with the law in detail because in many cases like this, it is the law that will define if a case such as this will would be considered in fact murder or not. 
Speaking of the law, I am happy to report that next season we will have a legal analyst to provide commentary on each episode. Otis Reed will be joining the File 13 family as our in-house legal expert. I want to thank you for listening to File 13. Please let us know what you think about the show. If you like it, please leave us a five-star rating. If you don't like it, leave a five-star rating anyways. You can email us at thefile13 at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for us or if there is a case that you want us to look into. Now remember, new episodes drop every Wednesday. Join us next week as we dive into the mysterious death of Kendrick Johnson. If you are one of the criminals that committed this crime and you can hear the sound of my voice, I want you to remember a cold case is not a closed case. You will be found and brought to justice. Until next week.